Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey guys, welcome to Elk Shape. How are you doing? It's August and uh, we got a couple weeks till elk season. Depending on where you live, some of you earlier tag holders would be Utah, uh, Nevada, great states to hunt, especially if you have a limited entry tag. And then most other states are going to probably get started, you know, right around the 1st of September, some states late, late August. Uh, but either way, it's it's crunch time. So I figure we're going to bring in a guy who has had some serious success on public land, general count, you know, general tag type guy. His name is Trent Williams. He's out of Wyoming. This dude is only 29. Uh, he's got at least three bulls over 350, two of which were on a general tag. And so we're going to pick his brain. He's got a different style than most. He's not afraid to vocalize, but really it comes down to, to being in tight on elk for longer periods of time and practicing more patience and knowing when to strike. That is a huge component to having consistent success is knowing when to strike and knowing when to set up off of a, a herd bull particularly and when he's with his cows and maybe not picking a fight with him per se but but staying in tight where he beds knowing he could potentially get up to go water he could get up to go push the cows around and get them all to stand up and do a sniff test and setting up keeping the wind right a lot of good stuff here I think you're going to enjoy it. So the podcast, we are, we're really enjoying all of the listens. So if you're new to the Elk Shape podcast, just basically understand this. This podcast is about the elk hunting learning curve. Meanwhile, I'm slipping in delayed gratification and personal development, teaching you more principles on how to kick ass at life through discipline, structuring your life in a way that you are financially fit, that you're making time for your family and you're balancing that portfolio and if you younger guys are listening these are some good things to take with you as you basically grow into your careers and your uh, if you're early in your elk hunting career we're trying to help you out and if you're a seasoned vet there's always good nuggets in here so before we get started on this podcast I quickly want to pay bills just so you guys understand that this uh, podcast is free and uh, we want to keep it that way so thank you Vortex Optics for believing in the elk shape brand the message and supporting our camps supporting this podcast if you guys want to check out their new amazing apparel line 
It is Elkshape HQ approved. Use discount code Elkshape, save 20%. I want to give a shout out to Wilderness Athlete. That is a brand that I have a lot of faith in. They share a lot of the same values that I do. They're not a marketing company. They make supplements for hunters. And uh, you can try them out, get the hydrate, recover, or energy focus. Check out their some of their protein blends. They have a s- several different options in there, including vitamins and a whole bunch of good quality stuff. Use a discount code Elkshape30, save 30% off your first purchase and then lastly black ovis uh which i by the way do not get a commission on this i don't get a check from black ovis but uh, discount code elk shape save 20 percent off your purchases your last minute purchases if you guys haven't caught some of my gear drop videos on our elk shape youtube channel that would be a good place to like go through your gear list one more time and then lastly if you have a few weeks and you still quite are into elk shape per se uh, check out 21 Days to Elk Shape. That's an online program. You get a PDF. It's video driven, so you can watch the videos. It integrates shooting under duress drills. And I'm here to tell you, every Elk Shape camp, I open everyone's eyes up to cool. You can hit four inch groups at 70 yards in your backyard, but you're struggling to even put a group together at 30 yards with a high heart rate. And so I would recommend trying that just from the shooting component, let alone the fitness. Shed those unwanted pounds that you don't want to lug around in the mountains and get ready, friends, because it's just a few short weeks away for finite September. So stoked. Let's dive in with Trent from Wyoming. Some big bull tactics. You're listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. What up? We are talking tonight with Trent Williams out of Wyoming, probably the best state to go elk hunting out west, except you got to deal with the most ridiculous wind in winter. Trent Williams, what's up? How are you, man? I'm doing great, Dan. Um, pleasure to be on here, and, and thanks for having me. Why should people not move to Wyoming? They, I think you you nailed it. I mean, we got nine months of winter, and we got 12 months of wind. So, um, I mean, even the, even the middle of the summer is windy, and then you've got just the stupid snowstorms where the wind drifts everything up, and and uh, if you can live with that, you know you've got yourself one of the best elk hunting uh, states in the country. And um, as far as quality of elk, we've got that. Um, as far as just general over the tags, we've got that. So if you can handle the winters and you can handle the every different kind of weather this place can throw at you, um, that's why you wouldn't move here. Otherwise, we've got it pretty good. What part of the state are you in? I'm in Green River, so the the southwest corner. Yep. Okay. That's not a bad spot, really. I mean, you're close to some cool stuff. Um, how long have you been a Wyoming resident? Uh, my entire life. I've, I've even lived in Green River uh, pretty much my whole life besides trying to, you know, I tried a year in Laramie, trying that whole college thing out and, and figured out it wasn't for me and, and moved home and got lucky and uh, got a job at, at a, a local mine. So I've, I've been here, you know, got roots here now and and I plan on staying here for the long haul. How long did you give it the college effort, the college try? Well, I went to the university for a year, and then I moved back and uh, tried the community college here um, in the town over in Rock Springs. And then just kind of out of the blue was offered a offered a kind of a dirt construction gig, and it was $19 an hour. So I took that thinking that, you know, maybe that's a good change of pace. And so kind of took that opportunity to to figure out what I wanted to do or or at least make some money and and uh, just kind of figure out life and that's led to to where I'm at now and and no complaints on my end you're a year away from 30 <laughs> right what does the next and by the way we're diving in I don't mess around what does the next third like the next decade look like how do you want it to look different how do you want it to look the same well I mean I, the way I know it'll look different is I just got engaged here uh, about a month ago, so I know that'll be different. Um, have a have a wife and and you know not sure about kids, but we'll find out soon enough. And and so I know that'll be a, an entire kind of change of of lifestyle a little bit from what I've been used to. I was pretty much you know single my whole life um, until I met Mackenzie, my fiance. So was able to to hunt and fish basically as, as much as I wanted to. Um, so I know that's going to change. I would like, you know, the elk hunting and, and 
she's been a trooper through this whole deal. She kind of knew what she was getting into when, when uh, she got together with me. But I like my long elk hunts. I like going on on adventures and, and trips, and I, I envision that staying the same. And, and you know, I also hope that, that uh, you know, just killing elk stays the same, being consistent on, on big bulls all, you know, continues to go down the same path it's on. I would like to branch out and, and uh, be a little bit more of a, a well-rounded hunter, I guess, with um, killing maybe some bigger mule deer and stuff. But I have fun right now as it is going on mule deer hunts, whitetail hunts every year, antelope, uh, elk, and, and whatever I'm invited on, anything else. So, I, I mean, obviously we don't know what the future holds, but, but that's what I see anyway. How long have you guys been engaged? Just about a month we got engaged on Memorial Day weekend. And do you have a date selected? We, not really. We, uh, we're thinking July of next year. Okay. So she, did you guys, were you guys dating last September? Yes. The one before that? Yes. Nice. Nice. I got this like rule of thumb of like, and I didn't follow it. I just want to FYI, but I think two elk seasons is good for folks listening. I got some young guys that listen. Dudes, listen up. I know she's beautiful. I know she drives you crazy, but two hunting seasons, not one. Because the first one, they're like, oh, he won't do that when we're married. you know, Or they'll think, oh, I can change him. I can change him. And I'm here to tell you, ladies, no, you cannot change us. It's in our DNA. Now, my wife, God bless her, when we first started dating, we started dating in August. And I was an outdoor videographer. And this was a long time ago, 2007. And so we dated for about a month. And then I maybe saw her three different times. And then it was about December 1st, including I didn't, I wasn't home for Thanksgiving. And I thought, man, if she doesn't break up with me after that, we're good to go. And here we are today. So uh, good a little advice for those. Um, that's exciting, man. I think that uh, marriage is a pretty cool thing. You know, once you find somebody who supports you and you support them and you got each other's back, it's powerful. Now, let's talk about finances because, we're like I said, I'm not messing around on tonight's podcast. We're diving right into the stuff. Are you guys going to share a checking account once you get married? You know, it's something that really, really hasn't come up right now. Um, she's got her bachelor degree in social work and is in the middle of kind of switching jobs going from – um, kind of a local place to, to working for the school district. Um, but in the middle of getting her master's degree online, you know, I've got my steady job. So we've always just kind of been separate. Um, but as far as the future, that's something that, you know, when she listens to this podcast now, it will probably get brought up, but. Oh God, she's going to hate me. Actually, she's going to love me because I'm going to help you guys out. I'm gonna, I'm going to do some premarital counseling live tonight on Elk Shea Podcast. So the first thing you guys need to sit down and talk about, if you're not going to actually do premarital counseling, which I highly recommend, is you need to tell her after she tells you her expectations. Because when Alicia and I did this and we had counselors, it was mind-blowing what her expectations were of me and I would have never guessed them. And then she would say the same about mine. For example, like I was like, I kind of expect you to do the household. I will chip in, but it will never be that high a priority to me to like make sure that there's not a single dish in the sink and that um, I'll cook meals, but I would love for it to be 70-30 on who makes dinners. You know what I mean? Like it was good to get that information out. And bro, we did not share a checking account when we first got married because I was not in debt. She was in debt. And it wasn't until we combined forces and got on the same page that we were able to really make some major steps. Now, does she have a lot of debt with school and stuff? Uh, well, I mean, she will. That's all she's got, though, is student student loan. She didn't have, you know, she didn't have any any other kind of overhead in college, like didn't buy a house or, or didn't get a car or anything like that. So she's just got her student loan thing, and that's the only thing she's she's really bringing in. Yeah, that's really cool. And you're 29, so I didn't get married till I was 27, and I thought, you know, I kind of was stoked that it, I waited a little later. So I think the later the better, but that's just my opinion. I think you're going to be in a good position to kind of have your ducks in a row and 
do that do get some of that awkward conversation up front on like expectations and uh, it never changes bro like i still have to check in with my wife and be like well what are your expectations um I talk about all that kind of stuff on this podcast. I try to just be real with people so they know that Elk Shape is just, oh yeah, I know Dan. If you've listened to my podcast enough, you should pretty much know me. But we talked about communicating hunting plans because mine are pretty aggressive. I imagine yours are as well. And I used to just kind of slip them in on the calendar, you know, like at the last minute, oh, I've been actually going to be hunting for three weeks or, or something like that. And now I just get it out of the way. Like, uh, it still sucks, by the way. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll get it out there so far in advance that either she's going to remember it or she's going to forget. But either way, I've got it out there. And, you know, I nice. told you, you know, I told her my plans. And if she forgot, that's that's on her. That's true. So what does your employer, what do they treat you like when it comes to hunting, vacation, PTO, sick time, four tens, weekend warrior? Where, what are you? What do you have going on? Uh, well, I, I work four tens, which I, I think that schedule is pretty hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I already have, geez, I believe I have, uh, five weeks of vacation with another week that's considered personal holiday. So basically six weeks of vacation already. I've been there. I'll be there seven years in October. So I get to 10 years, I'll get another week. Um, so as far as time off, you know, they've, they've treated me great and, and probably like, you know, most people listen to the podcast or, or whatever. If you're going to hunt, you know, that's, this was a big part of just what, like even staying local, but, but finding this job and this much time off with this schedule, you know, there's a lot of different places uh, being with that employer that I could go a lot of different avenues you can take and just the straight four tens, you know, works for me well. And then the, the amount of time off works for me well, the area I live in works for me great. Um, so everything, you know, has come together here. Yeah, that's great. Um, we're going to talk about elk. Big surprise. Um, <laughs> the reason why you're on is because Ben Gorman, shed next Ben Gorman, um, solid dude. He's he's just uh, my kind of people. So when he recommended you, I knew it was a good fit. And fortunately, you've been on a podcast before, so we got all the butterflies out of the way. And we're going to deliver a very polished product for you listeners tonight on how to get better at public land elk hunting. So let's dive in. Tra- um First question for you is, what is the biggest bull you've killed on a Wyoming general tag? Let's see. I got the, I'm staring at him right now. I, I kind of dubbed him King as well as kind of the other people that, that chased him. I, everybody kind of called him King, but I had a buddy. I didn't get him officially scored. I had a buddy score him who's fair and he um, scored him at 362. And then I, I killed one this year that I scored at 359 and my taxidermist scored at 353. So that's both two years apart on general tags. Um, I mean, I, you know, numbers don't mean a whole bunch when, when talking about general bulls, but that's what I've got. That's kind of what I've been, uh, the stuff I've been rolling with lately. And just, you know, it's been a dream these last few years, really, really, uh, I guess honing in on, on what my hunting style is. Um, and the area I've been in and really learning it from top to bottom, I think is, is what's helped, uh, you know, shape just some of this kind of recent success. And, and I think that's a big thing. People talk about scouting and whatnot and scouting every year. That's important, but really learning an area, um, I think kind of gets lost. And, and I understand people jumping around and wanting adventure too, but just having that home range that, that, you know, this is my opinion, this is my experience, but having that home area where I can go, where I go every year to hunt elk, um, knowing where big bulls live, where they frequent, um, has really paid dividends for me. So let me translate that for you guys out there that <clears throat> didn't quite catch that. Rather than hunting Montana one year, Idaho the next, then Colorado, why don't you try to go back to the same general over-the-counter tag year after year and build upon your knowledge, get to know it intimately, and you will see your success increase. Now, the reason why I asked you that general is What's the biggest bull you've shot on a limited entry tag? Yeah, he's pretty close. He was 364 and change, I believe. Folks listening, the general big bulls in Wyoming, those are all dead. So just keep saving your points for limited entry and leave the general tags for guys like me. That's what I'm saying. Um, No, but so success leaves behind clues. Trent, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. We're going to give you Elk Shape Podcast listeners your fill on info. This podcast will go into overdrive tonight. What's overdrive 
Overdrive is the back half of this podcast that we only put on the elkcollective.com. That is a pay-to-play virtual online elk hunting course with all the videos from our whole team. Uh, We got Ben Gorman on there. We got Brian Barney, Chris Rowe, Jason Phelps, Dirk Durham, Ryan Lampers, Joel Turner, all my friends. So it's like uh, we're taking over the elk hunting learning space basically with the Elk Collective. So uh, we'll go into overdrive tonight, but I'm going to give these Elk Shape podcasts. These guys are loyal. I'm going to give them some good nuggets. So Trent, um, when you talk about learning this area and going back to a same general area, break that down. How many years do you have in the area that you shot that first 360 and change bowl? And do you run trail cameras? And what kind of mapping system software are you referring back to, whether it be Topo, Onyx? Long question. I'm expecting a long answer. Go. <laughs> well, I've been I've been hunting it since I was 12 years old. It's just one of those areas where my dad hunted it, you know, when he was growing up or in his 20s and 30s. And then I just kind of got lumped into this place. Um, just by virtue of going up with him. Um, I didn't even own a bow until I was 15 or so. And, you know, I begged him to take me up there those, those years at, at 15, 16, 17, um, you know, and really had no idea what we were doing, especially in the archery woods. And, and I obviously didn't know what I was doing at all in those early years. Anyway, hunting elk, I'm just following around my dad. So, but that's where this all started. I, I mean, it's just the area that that my family grew up hunting. It's the area I was familiar with. You know, my dad had always been successful killing elk there. And, and so to just kind of move on from that, all I did was expand. And I think, you know, in, in those early years that I was bow hunting, there was nothing but topo maps and Google earth was brand new. And so the only real way to learn it was just to branch out. And I remember, you know, my dad telling me of these certain spots where you look down there and he says, you know, nobody goes down there. Well, then one day I just go down there and it, you know, it takes me 45 minutes to get out. It's not that big of a deal, but just to start shrinking that country, the country that seems so big. Um, and just, you hear all these stories about from all these guys around camp. And then you start headed to all these places just on foot or backpacking in or whatever, and just slowly learning them and just expanding this from what is this little area and what my dad and his buddies have just these little spots within them. And now, you know, I've expanded to, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a 20, 30 square mile area of these places I like to go and backpack into and and whatever else. So I guess to to put that to bed, I've I've hunted it my whole life and I've I've tried to branch out and and you know, I've had I've found elk in other places, but just being able to really hone in on this one spot, a spot where a lot of people didn't even know that bulls like this lived was just you know, I don't, it was just something, something that came natural and, and, uh, and something that I, I've loved to, to do so far. And, and it's, it's been a challenge, but it's been, you know, one of the greatest challenges I've ever, I've ever kind of done. And, you know, so I guess that's the biggest thing. Just now that we have all this technology at our fingertips, we went from nothing, the, the, just the topo maps and the, and the early stages of Google earth to now having on X and being able to, to pinpoint every little thing I find and, and just see, knowing exactly where maybe the, the roads on the other side of the mountain that I'm not familiar with, you know, when they're open, when they're closed, where these trail systems are, where before I had no idea how other people were getting in there. And now I do. And just being able to, you know, having all this information to, to, to use and go in there is, has definitely helped um, in the later years. And it's definitely been the great equalizer too. There's places where you know, early on in my bow hunting career, I'd walk in and not see anybody. And the, and the guys that rifle hunted it, um, wouldn't show up until October and I'd have the whole thing to myself. And now those guys go in there for a couple of weeks, bow hunting. And, you know, there's guys I run into every year from out of state that are in there that have just seen kind of the same thing that, that I knew long before that, um, you know, all this technology was at their fingertips about just being in the middle of these roadways, um, and getting back into these, these no man's lands. And, and so I guess from that, that's it. It's just been the, the, how technology's advanced and, and, uh, learning this thing from such a young age. Okay. So we're talking about these bulls that are in age classes that I'm not really accustomed to shooting. Honestly, I don't think I've, I've got 348 bull and I'm not much of a trophy hunter, but man, I would love to shoot giant 350 plus bulls every year. Point being when you get to killing bulls of this age class, it's a whole new level of elk comprehension from their behavior biology, their tactics, and what they're saying. 
what they're doing. And some of these bulls at this age class will do things that are just not normal. That's why they're this age class. And I know you know what I'm talking about. So let's dive into a little bit of the nuances of these upper echelon older bulls that are, they're certainly not four and a half. They're probably not five and a half. They're all probably six and a half plus, maybe even double digits. So these bulls, I've seen these kind of age class public land giants not even hang out with cows, sometimes hang out with cows, sometimes go on their own. I've seen them stay in tiny little pockets. And I've also seen them like show up at a trail camera five miles away one day, go to the other basin another day. They're all different. They all have different characteristics, personalities. Let's talk about the last bull you killed. Actually, no, I'll step back. The one that you called the king. Give us some of his characteristics that you were able to identify. How many years did you hunt him? And how did you expand upon your knowledge adjusting your tactics? So I, I hunted King for, uh, I mean, the better part of three years. I hunted him. Um, I hunted him one year and called him in a couple different times. Um, anytime he came in where I did call him in, he never come in screaming or anything like that. He always snuck in. Um, like the very first time I called him in, I was in the middle of the timber and really probably had, you know, I really probably shouldn't have been calling to him anyway. But I got in the middle of a herd and, and I knew he was on the outskirts and I just wanted to bring him to me to to take that look. And he did, but I just never even knew he was there until he was leaving. And then I uh, had actually kind of hunted him so many days in a row that I, I had a good idea when this bull bugled that it was a satellite bull that's been hanging around with him. So I snuck in there and, and cow call just when I got close and I actually called him into 10 yards again he, he just came in through the thick stuff basically silent and uh spooked into the meadow and I missed him low uh when he did spook out there but just to you know that first year I, I basically hunted him every single day and then the year after that I I drew a tag um up by Cody and then the year after that I backpacked in with a buddy and, and killed an elk on the on the third day we were in there and then so the year after that, this is now year three, I, I went in there kind of just into the same drainage because I'd, I'd found good bulls in there before I found King. Um, so I knew that it was just one of those big bulls kind of areas, but I went back in there and he's the very first bull that, that I heard bugling and the very first bull I saw. And so the very the first night of my hunt, I ended up getting to like, I can't remember, 32 yards or something like that from him. And instead of just following his cows across the meadow, like he's supposed to, I don't know if it's a nervous nature or what, but his cows are feeding through the meadow and he decides he's going to loop around and his loop basically just puts him right on top of me where he came through the timber. And I don't know if he had heard me in there and came to check out what was going on or what, but so yeah, I ended up hunting him, um, three years and then obviously killed him the third year, but it wasn't without knowing all his little nuances of, you know, he'd glunk a bunch. Instead of bugling, he, he would just glunk constantly. So you had to be close to him to even know that it was him. Um, I would say that his home range was his home range. He didn't really deviate. He had three little uh, secondary ridges that he would live on. And I would kind of pick each, you know, which one I wanted to go to that, that certain day. Um, usually I just picked the one in the middle. That was the safest bet because I could hear or see or whatever from the right. other two ridges. But that makes sense. If I, yeah, if I knew he was there, like if I left him in the morning or something, if I'd shadowed him and then and then let let him be, you know, I'd go back in, obviously. But home was home. He he never deviated from those three um, secondary ridges. And then, like you were saying, not hanging out with cows, he seemed to always have cows. He always had a harem. Sometimes it, he would go from like eight the day before. He'd have eight cows the day before, and then I'd find him with two. I don't know if that's just the cows that are nestorous, and that's what he wants that's all he wants to hang out with and the rest, you know, he kicks him out or whatever. And then I actually got a couple trail camera uh, pictures from some guys and he, they got pictures of him way down the mountain. So they were hunting him, you know, a mile, two miles away from me from where all really the magic was happening and uh, wondering how, you know, where he lived and everything else. And, and so he would just leave his cows at weird times. Um, and go wallow or, or go get a drink. Or I, I assume a lot of times it wasn't the middle of the day. Um, he would put his cows to bed or whatever. He'd know that they weren't going to leave and he'd head down the mountain, wallow, check his wallows, get a drink, whatever, and then, and head back up. So, you know, what you're saying about just learning these bigger bulls. I mean, obviously in this case, I had the luxury of learning this one for three years, but the, just the little nuances that they do is just so completely different and they just they do they act a little bit you know they're just so cautious it seems like 
leaving at weird times, um, going silent when every other bull in the basin is bugling their heads off or any little thing like that is just, and, and my hunting style really just kind of puts me close to these bulls and, and, and I kind of call not as a last resort, but only call when I have to, not as a, as a, the first thing I have to go to. And, and I think that really helps at times because I'm able to shadow these herds for as long as I can or whatever, and really not make that, that bull make a decision on what he wants to do, either go or, uh, stay or leave and so it, it helps you learn um you know what each individual bull is doing and you know stuff along those lines okay so let's stick with this specific bull and dive deeper so how were you approaching this herd to locate them in the wee hours in the morning how far was your camp or truck or were you spike camping bivy hunting base camp out of a truck like uh you know, what are we looking at logistics wise to get into his wheelhouse? Uh, he wasn't super far from a road. It was just kind of down in a hole. So the, the roads on, I guess it's kind of on the top of the ridge, but right. it's, it's on, it's kind of over the fold of the ridge, if you will. So you have to climb just a little ways up to get to the top and then drop way down into this hole. And then, like I said, there's, you know, those little secondary ridges. So it really wasn't that far. And I was able to hunt them just from a base camp um, and go in there every day. But the only thing I would really do is try and locate them really early in the morning. So I'd be up before everybody else and usually hike into that middle ridge. Like I said, sometimes that was different, but hike into that middle ridge and listen for them for a while. Or if I had to try and make him bugle or, or that one day, like I said, all I did was hear a bull bugle that I thought was his satellite bull yep. and made the move then. But when you're talking about this relatively small area of, of three secondary ridges, um, you know, I knew there wasn't, there's not a whole lot of room for another, you know, herd of elk to move in. So once I heard them, I, I pretty much knew that, that that was my herd and, and I'd make my move from there. So once I, you know, I'm on top of these secondary ridges in the morning, thermals are still coming down. So I'd immediately just have to drop elevation. I wouldn't say anything if I didn't have to, like I said. So I'd just drop elevation on this dude or on his herd, um, get below him with the thermals and then try and work my way in. And as soon as I, you know, if they were playing their part right and making some elk noises i could get into his bubble you know most mornings and then try and play the game from there and that basically day after day is what i did um that third year the year i killed him you know i bumped him that first day and they went further down the mountain i didn't hear him again for like another or hear see nothing for like another four days and then my last day i was going to be there um he ripped off a bugle and and i got really aggressive even i even kicked a satellite bull basically I ran at him. I had nothing to lose and I had to get close to this bull. And I knew that the satellite was far enough away, you know, 150, 200 yards where I just kicked him off, ripped a bugle, ran in and, and got just kind of at the right place at the right time as they were moving up the mountain. But so yeah, hunting this bull in particular, you know, start low on the mountain in the morning and then, and basically just live in his bubble as much as I could and just know that, you know, really I can't call him in. I've tried it before. And I've got to just live with him and just know that if I can keep the wind right and keep everything in my favor, he's going to screw up. Okay. So in the morning, when you, after you've hiked in, <sighs> thermals are in your favor because you're down low, but you're not too low where you're like near water and can't hear. Obviously you can hear, which is important. How fast, how far are these elk traveling in the mornings, generally speaking, to where you're not too close, you screw it up but you're able to kind of let them get to where they want to be and then start working into that quote bubble. I don't know that I ever let them get to where they wanted to be. I okay. just was on them as quick as I, you know, I knew I had to cut the distance. So you said I was low all the time. I wasn't low because I, I would be up high to here. I would be on these ridge tops and not really mind. They're not super steep. So when I'm on top, you know, I can easily just cut that elevation, drop down in the canyons and then start up the other side. So I would just gotcha. almost immediately cut the distance. That's all I, you know, that was what was working best for me. And it's some, I had encounters with him doing that. So I just kind of kept playing that thing. I just knew that it was going to happen sooner or later. And then, you know, once you kind of live with these elk, elk, you know, for lack of a better term, you live with these elk long enough in the morning, in the evening, or especially the morning, you know, you can kind of start to guess from there. They always went, you know, Northwest, uh, when they're on this ridge, you know, or whatever. And yeah. I could kind of, I could kind of guess where they were headed from there as long as the wind was right. But 
Yeah, I'm assuming they were headed with the wind in their face. Right. Getting where they need to get. Now, were you able to dog the herd because this bull was, you know, right on his cow's asses? Or was he more of like your traditional herd bull? He's back a little bit, kind of keeping the herd moving and getting pestered by some satellites. He seemed to be pretty much in them. Like I said, um, at certain times, like... I just remember the, the two different mornings he had like the six to eight cows. And actually, I and I think this is one of those times, this all just kind of came together as I got those trail camera pictures from those other guys. But um, I actually snuck up. I actually, I called him in a little ways to about 60, 80 yards. He looked and went, nah, you know, I'm not having that. And then went back to his cows. Well, I worked for the rest of the morning as the thermals were good. I worked in the range of his cows. And then when I got there, I, it was kind of like, you know, I got to make some movement and I got to get things standing up and, and I'd been here long enough and he was nowhere to be found. So I'd already kind of called him in a little ways, then shadowed the herd and he's gone. And I have no idea where he went. Never heard him bugles, nothing. And then the next day I found him with, with, uh, with two cows. Uh, but usually he was, he was pretty close to him most of the time and then would just, you know, I, that mid morning time is when I would get closest when everything would kind of just start to slow down. They wanted to get, you know, where they were going to spend the middle of the day. That's really when you had to kind of buckle down and get in there and, and try whatever you're going to try for the day. Not, not to mention even that the, you know, the, those Western Wyoming winds are going to start swirling and screwing things up. So I would just get aggressive, get as close as I could cut that distance right off the bat. And, and he was, the reason I know, you know, that, that I mentioned he was glunking is that was one of the best ways that I could keep tabs on him because he didn't just rip out a bugle, you know, very often. He did bugle quite a bit, just trying to keep his cows rounded up, but he would just glunk almost constantly, just tending those cows and falling up the mountain or, you know, whatever elk do. And so that's how I kept tabs of him most of the time. He'd glunk, cows would talk back to him and I would just be able to, you know, just kind of stay right with him. I love it. I think that's cool. So Looking back at some of your, I mean, you haven't been bow hunting elk, you know, forever, but you got a lot of experience. You have a lot of reps in the field. And I think that's the key. What advice do you have for my, my listeners that are maybe coming out West or they live out West and, you know, they, they get attracted to that backpack style elk hunting, going deep, trying to find these areas where elk aren't as messed with. And I want you to compare and contrast that with maybe hunting from your truck like you were in this instance or some middle ground where maybe you spike camp a little bit and then check different basins, go back to your spike camp, either move it or stay there if needed. Like compare and contrast what's worked for you and kind of what you think is best for the elk hunting that you're you're accustomed to. Um, and, you know, it, I'll even do both in the same year if I feel that it's necessary. So I usually have like my, my uh, base camp or my truck camp and then with plans to spike in. But for somebody else who's coming, especially from like, if you've never backpacked before the, you know, I'm sure you've gotten into this plenty, but the mental aspect of backpacking is tough. So if you can pick a spot where you can, where you can truck hunt and hit these middle grounds, um, I think for your first hunt that that's a better way to go. You can get into a lot of elk a mile from the road. Um, and like we were talking about earlier, a little bit, like when I started bow hunting and there was no rifle or I guess no rifle hunters, but nobody who I knew that used these camps during rifle season were there during bow season. Now they are, and you've got, you know, horse hunters and, and it's just come to the point where in a time where I used to just kind of out hike everybody and get back into these places when I was younger, it really doesn't happen like that a whole lot anymore at least in my experience so you're not going to beat everybody back like you think you are and then when you do and you know you kill an elk you got to be ready for that too but the truck hunting aspect to me is more comfortable uh you know it, it makes you i guess it's more relaxing for somebody who's going to come out right away that's what i would do and then even just having that mobility so you backpack in for four days and the elk aren't talking and you're not you know i've talked to buddies who i have a buddy who hunts just 10 miles from me and it's almost like we're on different sides of the coin. When my bulls are going, his aren't. And when his aren't, mine are. And just having that that mobility to, to go through and, and night bugle or or be able to just glass in the mornings if, if you're completely lost. Instead of being, you know, just having all your eggs in that one basket backpacking in, you have all this mobility and you have this freedom um, to go wherever you want. 
find different places if you need to and and just employ different tactics. Cool. Before we go to overdrive, I'm going to do one more scenario with you. And I think your answers are really awesome. This is gold. So keep it up. The The hunt you did in Cody was a limited entry hunt. Yep. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, I can use this as an example for people that can't scout ahead of time. So I'm hoping you weren't able to really scout much Cody before you went. Well, I, I did. I made one scouting trip, but that was it. I just, but I didn't scout before I put in for the tag, if that helps. I just kind of, just like everybody else, you know, I was in my uh, early 20s and I was stuck on where in Wyoming can I go that holds the biggest bulls. And around that area is the place in the state, you know, that really holds a lot of huge bulls. Now, I I kind of knew the dangers between, you know, the grizzly bears and all that. And I guess just being young and dumb threw caution to the wind. But I wasn't able to No, I'd never stepped foot in that area before I applied. I just went purely on ambition. And then I think, you know. To make that one scouting trip, I didn't find any bulls that I liked. I didn't. I only found a couple bulls, really. But what I did learn was the roads, um, the shape they were in. You know, honestly, I probably needed a four wheeler, but I was young and didn't have one. And so, but at least learned the different access points and and even just the like. I know, and I look at what how much traffic there looks to be at the trailhead so if i pull into a trailhead and there's not a parking area um, or a big turnaround area i know that that's not hit a lot go in there and it's just the end of a two-track road or just different stuff like that uh, really helped me out but no i didn't find any elk that i liked i didn't find much i was just there for like three days glassing around found some cows and learned the roads and that was it when you're talking about going to a new area most people won't be able to do that three-day scouting trip but some will. So I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about the research you did leading up to that scouting trip. So one of the things you said, I don't know if people keyed in is, yeah, you went to the area, you glassed a few cows up, but you just got a look like a lay of the land. And you said that you drove the roads, understanding your access points in person, driving as many of the roads and understanding where most people are going to camp and where most people are going to bottleneck. To me, that's more important than Oh, I saw a 340 bull. I saw a 350 bull, and I saw a 360 bull in this basin. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Explain to people that, like those areas that I did see, you know, decent bulls, and they were nowhere to be found anyway. While I was trying to figure this this whole hunt out, so it really didn't do me any good to find those bulls anyway. What what did do me good was I found that road, that access point that dissected the middle of the unit and found a bunch of cows, and then that's where I found the bull that that I ended up killing. And and you know, I kind of thought about that throughout the hunt was. Bulls are going to be in there breaking those cows up. I think if nothing else transpires here, I can go to where I found all those cows, where I know that this road, where I can overlook everything, this whole unit basically, and I can find elk and then we can go from there. Yeah. So guys listening, if you do get a chance to scout, man, is it worth it to go learn the unit or units and the and the drive the roads more than anything. Let's say that you did some research before you drove to Cody. Was that networking with fellow like-minded, awesome elk hunters? Was that reaching out to strangers on social media? Was that watching YouTube? Was that pouring over Google Earth? Give us some of your best tips there. That was mostly really, that was like diving into, this was the days where I subscribed to every magazine and, and you know, that's kind of changed for me and, and I think most people too, but that was just digging deep into stats and, and looking up what was available on the Wyoming Game and Fish website kind of after the fact, but but really just digging in on where everybody's saying the biggest bulls are coming from. And I, I had spent zero time in that area, so I, I really didn't know. I just, I knew that the, the bulls that I had seen killed up in that country were huge, and I knew the dangers that went into it. But like I said, I guess I was young and dumb and didn't really care, but basically that's all I knew was I need, if I'm going to chase the biggest bulls in the state and have a great chance at, you know, chasing down this, this lifelong dream of a big bull, then this sounds like the place right now that I need to go. And, you know, being in the Southwest corner of Wyoming, I've got these desert uh, units around me that are world renowned and everybody wants to hunt them, but I still have yet to draw one. So I knew that going up to Cody, these bulls are going to be big, you know, it's going to be a little bit harder of a hunt, but it's a hunt that honestly, that maybe is more enjoyable too, being in the timber and not in this high desert or, or whatever, but being in the, in the big mountains, um, but yeah, that it was just looking over everybody's stats that they've put out, seeing the, the bulls that people killed, knowing that that's where I got that 
big bulls live up there and I have a decent chance to draw a tag and I drew. All right. Last question before we go to overdrive for Trent. Once you made it to Cody, most people are fretting over how do we find elk, whether it be early September, mid-September, late September, early October. How did you do it? How long did it take you? What was your approach? Were you hunting out of a backpack? Were you night bugling? What did you do just to get people excited and get them thinking about how they're going to attack this year's hunts? Well, the scouting trip aside, um, where I found the cows, that, that was a big help, but I didn't even hunt that area for, for three days. Um, I hunted these areas that I thought held elk and the, the ones that, you know, I was just kind of stuck on, I guess, the ones that I had um, looked at online and that I thought looked good and, and nothing really transpired there. I was hunting out of my truck or out of a camper and I was actually going to go to the end of that road, that access point and backpack in um, when I found that, that bull that day. So um, in order to, I guess, finding elk there, I just knew that these spots had dried up. This is really my only access point as far as what lets me really see this place as much as I can. And I had I'd use it on my scouting trip also, but I, I used this road, knew that this road was there. And I knew that, you know, I've been kind of just hunting the timber and listening for bulls until this point, everything's dried up. So now it's just, I don't know if they're bugling. I don't know anything else. So I'm just going to hit this high point And, and my thought really was to just kind of mule deer hunt them. I know I can hit these points. And if anybody's ever been up there, up to the Absaroka range, it's, it's a, a little bit, I don't know, different than, than like most of Western Wyoming that I'm used to where timberline seems to be at like 9,000 feet. And then above that is just these, I guess it's kind of, it's cliffy as well, but there's these rolling Hills, but these elk are kind of living right on the fringe of that, that timberline area. So if you get to the right spots, you can glass them up and find them. And that was really my, that was what I was going to do was hit these high points, glass, listen, and just cover a bunch of country and see what I could figure out. Cause I was at a dead end. And in the process of doing so, I, ended up spotting the bull from the road, but my tactic, I guess, was stayed the same in that I did exactly what I needed to do. I'm covering country and I'm hitting these high points. It just happened that I didn't have to hike in to do so. Yeah. I think mobility is so key guys. Don't get in love with this backpacking in 10 miles into a trailhead. You could literally push the elk out of the area. Then you're 10 miles deep. So you're going to burn another half day getting out. Usually you stay the night, come out the next day. That burns so much time. Mobility is everything. And I'm hunting three new units this year, three new states. Well, not new states, but new units in states that I've hunted before. And, dude, I'm going to be Johnny Mo. I'm going to be a gypsy. I literally, I don't plan on hunting. You know, unless I find something I really like, I'm going to be everywhere. And that's, to me, that's cool. I've actually hunted one time. In unit, I hate saying unit numbers, but this one doesn't scare me because most people, you'd have to hire an outfitter. It's the uh, unit 51. And I hunted that in 2007. When I drew it, I think it was the first year that they had the draw was 2007. And uh, I, so I didn't have any points, but I drew and I was like, sweet. And then I started looking through the regs and I was like, Oh, this is all wilderness right on. And uh, and then I was like, wait a second. I can't hunt the wilderness unless I hire an outfitter. So we we did some calling around and we did some negotiating with a couple different people. And uh, so we got to kind of hunt the wilderness and it was insane. It, it was insane. There was grizzlies. There was sheep. There was mule deer, uh, giant elk herds, herds of 80 to 100. And I distinctly remember probably one of the biggest bulls I've ever seen in my life still to this day. And we didn't know what we were doing very much. And we pushed him right into Yellowstone. <laughs> and uh, that, the country in there is insane, man. And so it's like it's unlike anything else, really. I'd love to go back. But I think, you you know, realistically, I need a resident guide who's crazy enough to go mess with G-Bears and, and hunt those elk. That outfitter was really cool, man. Like he, he'd ride us in. So we'd get up pretty early and we'd get on his horses and he'd ride us in a little ways from camp. And then he'd kind of just, you know, highline the horses and hang out the horses. So uh, we were able to go a little ways from him and, and kind of do setups. But it's uh, it's not like we were actually just left him at camp camp. Like he, he was there, but it was really cool to see that country. And a lot of it was burnt. 
So it's just matchsticks, just, you know, that kind of timber and um, very, very remote hunting. I believe it was a 20-mile horseback ride one way. And I remember riding over cliffs that were like super sketchy, even on stock, where um, what an adventure. And that just goes to say not all hunts have to like have a punch tag for them to be super memorable. I was with my dad. We were in the wilderness. We saw a lot of different animals. And we sure learned that we sucked at elk hunting pretty fast. <laughs> so, well, um, Trent. Where can people find you on Instagram and Facebook? And then we're going to mosey on over to the overdrive and talk about general elk hunting in Wyoming, general tag elk hunting. Yeah, you can find me just on Instagram. It's just uh, the letter T, T Williams, W-I. And then Facebook, I I have a little page just for myself. It's just Trent Williams Outdoors, and and that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Cool. I will post a link to both those in the show notes for those that actually check that out. Guys, remember separations in the preparation. Some really good nuggets. This is worth a listen. You might want to re-listen and start making your plans for 2020. Season's almost here. We're a few weeks away. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Guys, that was a really good podcast with Trent. Yes, we're going into overdrive. That is basically where we put extra bonus podcast material on the elkcollective.com. On this particular overdrive, we're going to dive deep into general tag, Wyoming tactics, strategies, what units to kind of go over and consider. Trent dropped some pretty good information. I don't feel bad because that information is pretty juicy and I don't think it should be super public. But if you want to be a subscriber, a member of theelkcollective.com, check it out. Basically, it's a place where we pulled all our hunting resources into one resource. So instead of hiring some sort of digital course and just hearing about one guy's tactics, we're, we're actually bringing several people in. We feel like you need to have all the tools in your bags and everyone's got a little bit of a different way or narrative on how they do their elk business and if you think that conducting elk business one way is going to get it done you'll be you'll be you know severely disappointed so we've pulled in chris rowe joel turner brian barney jason phelps dirk durham john gabriel and then even i think we even might have the bro brothers come in all our friends in the industry and all the people that are maybe not even in industry we're going to bring them into the elk collective and create digital content specifically video audio so you can learn while you're on the road learn while you're at a computer and just enhance your elk hunting knowledge so check that out that's where that will be uh just remember right now we've got a few short weeks left until elk season so try to break a sweat every day in the name of better elk hunting remember that separation is in the preparation prepare your gear your food your mind your body your spirit and get ready to take advantage of september it is finite my friends i appreciate all of you tuning in Please tell a friend if you dig our podcast and we'll catch you on the next one.